0: Scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter two, one through 11. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her mother, or Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk but you have kept the good wine until now Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him
1: So this is a great story the wedding at Cana it's a fun story but what is this what is this story really about there's been a lot of Different commentaries talk about different things. My first thought is maybe this story is about Jesus and his mother, because this is quite an an eye opening exchange between Jesus and his mother. In fact, I dare say this is, at this point, we know for a fact that, excuse me, that that Joseph has probably passed on. And the reason we scholars know that. Is because if Jesus had talked to his mother like that, and Joseph was anywhere within earshot, Jesus would have been turned over his knee. <laughs> I think. If I'd have talked if I'd have called my mother woman, Lord help me. Now my father never raised a hand to me, he never had to. He would uh, in fact I remember once I was mouthing off of my mother and I'm looking at my mother and my father is sitting in his chair reading a newspaper and I said something sassy and all I heard was the crinkle of the paper you know like this and it crinkled and I didn't even have to turn around I apologized to my mother (laughs) and I went about doing whatever it was she was asking me to do so this is how we know Joseph is not with us anymore at this point because Jesus kind of gets a little lippy with his mother here. Woman, it's not my time yet. Uh, and you know, we can make a lot about that. Jesus is a little indignant of, towards his mother. Of course, he does what she wants, right? He he performs the miracle, but he was a little he was a little sassy about it. Um, and the reason for his objection, his sassiness, his hour had not yet come. Yet he does it anyway. Like I said and you know i think all of this a lot of this is the whole is about jesus really not wanting people's faith to be based on the miracles that jesus does if you read john start to finish you get this sense that jesus was real concerned about this he 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 was almost bothered every time he had to do something miraculous and constantly reminded his disciples that there is a lot more depth to be found beyond the signs that Jesus performs. Blessed is you who have faith even though you don't see, right? He says to Thomas. And uh, there's kind of that theme going on in Jesus' ministry in John. He doesn't want people to have faith just because they saw something really cool happen, right? So, But I dare say this story isn't really about that this story could be uh... maybe it's an affirmation of marriage if you were if you are catholic and you go through the wedding ceremony this is the gospel text of the wedding mass they always they always read this at a catholic wedding and i suspect that the reason for this is that it really is the only wedding ceremony that you read about in the bible however it's not even the wedding per se in this particular text we're at the reception Jesus is at the reception right which usually in biblical times usually happened over three or four days and so they they're probably around day three if they've run out of wine it's a pretty good party clearly something's going on and they're probably around day three And the wedding has already long happened already Uh, and you know the kingdom of God is often described as a wedding banquet in mark and Jesus is often referred to as the the bridegroom whatever the case it is clear that the wedding in this text is kind of incidental to the story and not really the main thrust thrust of the story some make a lot out of the fact that this miracle was brought to the servants alone This is Jesus's first miracle uh, and it's brought to the servants right the host of the party doesn't even know what's going on they didn't even know that there was some miracle that happened and even the steward who's supposed to know how much wine everyone has even he seems a little bum fuzzled as to why the good wine was saved till last and the servants they're the ones who know what's going on right the servants seem to know now a lot of a lot of scholars will make some some stuff about that uh... and there is of course the discussion about jesus and wine here in utah this is a favorite one and many, including myself, have often tried to make this a story that is focused on the wine. Right? This, is a, the, the, this story somehow is an endorsement of imbibing in wine and even a lot of wine. <laughs> and while it would be difficult, given this text, to say that Jesus was a teetotaler, it would be equally difficult to say that Jesus is endorsing drinking because of this text because quite frankly it's really not about that what this story at its heart of hearts is really all about is grace this is a story about grace it's not even about the miracle it is about jesus and grace jesus at this gathering takes this opportunity to demonstrate to his disciples and to to all who would hear about this, that in Christ there is something brand new going on. You see, they have these jars there. These jars that Jesus instructed the servants to fill were stone jars, big giant stone jars that held about 180 gallons of water. And these stone jars, these very heavy stone jars, were used for ritual cleansing. That people would often do, and they would, uh, you know, they'd wash their hands and anything, their feet and anything else that needed to be purified. This was, this was, and the reason they were stone jars was because stone could not be defiled, and so you would put pure water in a pure vessel, stone vessel that was undefiled. If it was a wood vessel or or even ceramic, that was that could be defiled by unholy water but in this case the stone seemed to be impervious to that I suppose and the ritual cleansing like so many rites and ceremonies of the time were designed to wash clean the day-to-day guilt of one's sinfulness they would they would ritually wash themselves every day to make up for the sins that they had done since the last washing they'd have they were, along with many structures and implements in Israel, a constant reminder of one's guilt. And this guilt was constantly reinforced by the religious establishment, the Pharisees, whose desire for purity de-evolved into an obsession about what was clean and what was unclean to the point that they dare not touch any other human being for fear of becoming unclean they would literally keep themselves distant from touching anyone and you can just imagine coming to this wedding and ritually cleaning yourself and then not really wanting to engage anything that's going on these who through ritually though they they ritually cleanse themselves constantly were like whitewashed tombs Jesus says clean on the outside but dead on the inside. The ritual failed to penetrate to the heart and the result was hypocrisy and guilt. These jars were walls that had been built over the centuries that continued to widen the distance between humanity and a real, honest-to-goodness, heart-changing, transforming relationship with God. They were a reminder of one's unworthiness. That one must be vigilant against the corruption of this world and even your own sinful wickedness. They were a reminder to everyone that they were never free of their sin, but that they could only dull the effects by cleansing every day. They were there to remind everyone that while it was indeed a day of rejoicing, God is still not happy with us. What is this about us, we people, that we're so convinced of God's displeasure? Uh, You know, we seem to revel in it. I can remember my own fear of God's punishment when my own piety waned or when I had been bad. And it seems to be something that we never really shake in our faith. And it's not that I or you don't have things that warrant disapproval. You know, I've been out with some of you. I know we all do things we probably shouldn't do. Believe me, there are many things that warrant a little guilt on my part. But somewhere we got the notion that this self-disgust, this self-loathing is something that came to us from God. But somehow, God is the one who despises our sinfulness and despises our very heart because of it, that we are found repugnant in the eyes of God because of this. My friends, God is bigger than our sinfulness. God knows that we are bigger than our own sins as well. We recently i 'm sure all of you did too. we recently' went and saw the the movie Les Miserables, right? Who all, who all seen that? Very powerful. But you know, I love, the movie's great, but it, the movie leaves so much out that's in the book. If you ever read the book, which is, you know, this thick, uh, they leave a whole bunch out. And in fact, the musical just glazes over my favorite part. And that's the moment when Jean Valjean, the, the guy who'd been released from prison after after all these years for stealing a piece of bread and who is full of rage and, and resentment and jaded by, by years of violent uh, abuse in prison. Uh, Jean Valjean gives in to his sense of unworthiness, broken by the cruelty of the world and convinced of his own fallen state. And he gives in to his lower self and steals all the silver utensils from the only person who had shown them any kindness, this humble Monsignor. It's my favorite character in the whole book, which I guess you can imagine why. and then when Valjean is caught and brought before this humble priest, the priest lies and says that he had given him the silver. And that Jean Valjean had forgotten the two silver candlesticks. And he takes them off the shelf and hands them to him. And then after the police leave, he, he is dumbfounded by why the priest would do this. He's left to wonder what had happened. And the priest says that he had just purchased... Valjean's soul. And that he was free to live a life worthy of it. But see, it wasn't that Jean Valjean was given a chance to change who he was. That is, go from being a scoundrel and a no good person. It is that the priest saw within Valjean the good and compassionate person he really was. And he had freed him to be himself and to live into himself. The person that that priest saw deep within, the real person behind the broken and hard man before him. And he knew that it was not guilt that would bring that out, but love and mercy and grace. You know, we in the church have been at this guilt game a long time and over and over and over again I run into people who they have left and they've walked away from their relationship with God because we in the church have made have have pounded into their brain this guilt it doesn't work guilt does not work it doesn't draw you into a deep and meaningful relationship with God it just doesn't work what works is grace. What works is mercy and forgiveness. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to convey to us in this story as well. Jesus replaces the facade, the ritual cleansing, the ritual piety with something that's real. Jesus takes away the relationship based on guilt and ritual and replaces it with a real relationship based on God's love for us first we could fill the jars over and over again we could wash ourselves over and over again but it will never satisfy it will never be quite enough but Jesus replaces that water with what with wine good stuff not just wine but lots of wine about hundred and eighty gallons of wine a lot of wine and this wine represents god's overflowing grace and not only just a lot of wine but the best wine what jesus brings he brings an abundance of there's more than enough not only for that night's festivals but the whole wedding feast and more when the issue was one of being out of wine jesus went way over the top and now there is no chance no chance of running out of the best wine And what I have just described to you is what wine represents in this story is God's grace. That's what it represents. The wine is God's grace. God's overflowing and abundant grace. Joy-filled and satisfying grace. Transcendent and peaceful grace. This is God's greatest gift to us. And Jesus never wants us to forget it. And yet, we so often do. We so often throw it away with both hands. God gives us a feast of grace to feed on. God offers us an an all you can eat buffet of grace. Amen? And so often, we just nibble at it. There's a whole buffet. And we just take a taste. Like those little finger sandwiches you get at high tea. What's that about? that's not that's not satisfying grace isn't a watercress sandwich with butter it's a turkey leg you know big grace isn't Mogan David grace is an 85 Chateau Margaux lovely grace is something that we are given to to revel in to feast on, to get drunk on, amen. No, <laughs> they like that part. <laughs> you know, it's a symbol, right? <laughs> and we're talking. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor. We're we're told to take in our fill. Yet we insist on holding on to our guilt. We cling to this idea that God is angry and must be appeased. We continue to let ritual take the place of real honest to goodness relationship. And this has been the failure of the church. It's that we often in our history have fallen into that same old trap that Jesus railed against 2,000 years ago. But today, we are invited to join the wedding feast the celebration and to drink in the grace freely given and to join the steward in this story who proclaims you have saved the best wine until now amen we've saved the best wine until now we like the steward are invited to taste the good wine to drink it in to never again fall into the trap of guilt, of shame, of festering unworthiness, of ugliness. Humble, yes. Unworthy, never. God provides an abundance of love, an abundance of mercy, an abundance of grace that is bigger than any sin any of you good people have ever even tried. Small potatoes really God's grace flows over it so much wine that pretty soon you forget about all those sins and you just live the good life that's why it's such a great symbol amen you just live the good life the full and abundant life like good wine that God has promised God has provided and God begs us to partake of begs us to. So we're invited today to glut ourselves on the grace of God. Let us pray. Oh, loving God, we love our guilt so much. We love our shame. Sometimes we wrap ourselves in it like a warm blanket, and yet we're still cold. Only Your grace. Only Your grace really does the job. Help us to embrace this gift so freely given and so difficult to accept. And yet we know that unless we revel in the grace You have provided, something will be missing from our relationship with You. Something will be missing. Help us to never want to miss that. Help us to embrace it. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.